You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of creating one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, this is Mark Sarvis, and I'm the author of the novel Memento Park, uh, released by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in March of this year. UCLA Extension Writer's Program Instructor Mark Sarvis is the author of the novel Memento Park, a member of the National Book Critics Circle and PEN America, and has judged the Penn Center USA Fiction Award, the Flaherty Dunnan First Novel Prize, the Kirkwood Prize, and the Tournament of Books. Memento Park, his second novel, follows Matt Santos, who, after receiving an unexpected call from the Austrian consulate, becomes aware of a painting that he believes was looted from his family in Hungary during the Second World War. To recover the painting, he must repair his strained relationship with his harshly judgmental father, uncover his family history, and restore his connection to his own Judaism. Along the way to illuminating the mysteries of his past, Matt is torn between his doting girlfriend Tracy and his alluring attorney Rachel, with whom he travels to Budapest to unearth the truth about the painting and, in turn, his family. I wish I knew or could remember where the idea of this novel came from. It was going to be my first novel, and I realized I wasn't a good enough writer to do the things I wanted to do with this book. So I set it aside and wrote my my training book, my, my practice book, my starter book. And I've gone through my papers to try to remember where the spark came from. My first short story was published in the late 90s in a magazine that's now out of business, not my fault, I hope, called Troika Magazine. And like this novel, it was a Holocaust-themed short story. And my author bio at the time says, apparently, he is working on a novel regarding looted World War II art. So I know I've had the idea for a long time. I know I've been interested in the painter Kirshner, who is the real-life model for my fictional painter for a long time. But astonishingly, I can't remember that sort of moment of spark where the idea came to me, which I remember very vividly for my first novel and for the novel I'm writing now. I made a big change to the way I work, and I I wasn't quite sure I'd be able to pull it off, which is that I I didn't have an outline. For my first novel, I had been coming off a background as a screenwriter, and I was familiar with that world, and I wanted what I call the training wheels of the outline. For Memento Park, I didn't. I had a single sheet of paper on which I had jotted down a few big moments that, in my gut, I thought were already going to be somewhere in the book. And to be honest with you, I haven't even looked back at that sheet. It would be interesting to see how many of those remained. And I sat down each day, uncertain of what I would write that day. Uh, And I just allowed the next scene to present itself. I wrote out of sequence. I wrote things from the end. I wrote things from the middle. I didn't necessarily know how it was all going to fit together. I was saved by a wonderful, wonderful writing program called Scrivener, which a lot of my students use. because it enables you to have a visual into all of these fragments and you can start to see an order that suggests itself and begin to move things around. But I really felt my way through the dark. There's a quote I've heard variously attributed, whether it's to Joan Didion, Ann Carson, some very smart writer, 
and she said, uh, I write to find out what I think about something. And that's what I tried to do with Memento Park and give myself that latitude to discover. There is a twist in the book that nobody will see coming. I'm utterly, utterly confident. I had a publisher of one of the houses that sought to acquire the book say to me on the phone, how did I not see this coming? The answer is he didn't see it coming because I didn't see it coming. It was an idea that surprised me organically in the writing, and then I knew it would surprise the readers the same way. And so I was really thrilled when that happened. But for that to work, I had to give myself the luxury of time. And there was a period where I was certainly aware that my shelf life as a blogger was expiring. My quote-unquote notoriety would soon evaporate. And I made a decision. Do I want to devote my energy to becoming a better novelist or to being a literary, an internet literary personality? And so I really gave the time to the book and I stopped looking at the clock and I stopped looking at what was happening around me and I stopped looking at my friends who were bringing out their second and some of them their third novel in the time it was taking me to do this because I knew that this was the amount of time that this book needed. And I, I protected that time and I made sure that I didn't rush it because I've rushed things before and I know what cutting a corner looks and feels like and I wasn't going to do that here. And I've promised my agent I'll get him the next one in five or six years instead of ten, but that remains to be seen if I can keep that promise. I began working on Memento Park in earnest at the beginning of January 2009, uh, and it's a slightly shameful confession that I make, which is that the novel explores the relationship with my father, and at that point my father was ill and not expected to live very long, and I had never had the nerve to write the book while he was alive. And it was only as I became aware that he didn't have long left with us that I sort of felt free to start writing this book. Um, it was still a long and a difficult uh, sort of birth process. The first draft took me four years to write a first draft. I have gotten very superstitious when I start new novels now, and I have this little magical trick that seems to work very well. There's a little... Uh, coffee shop up in Pacific Grove, which is a town next door to Monterey. And I go up and I hold myself away in an inn there for four or five days. And I go down to that coffee shop every day. And in January of 2009, I went down there and I was determined not to leave until I had found the voice of my narrator. Uh, I'm writing in the first person. I'm drawn to the first person. And I find that books tend to come to life in my brain when I can hear the voice of the narrator, when the narrator starts speaking to me. I was fortunate. Matt, my narrator, began speaking to me quickly and easily, and I left with about 50 rough pages from that five-day uh, hiatus up there. Unfortunately, the remaining 200 pages of the draft took close to four years to complete. Um, it was a time of some internal tumult, I had uh, my father died during the time that I was writing the book. Um, I had a daughter and a divorce and moved a couple of times, so life complicates things. But it was also a, a more ambitious book than my first book. There was more I wanted to do, whether at the sentence level or at the char deep character level. And I found myself proceeding rather slowly from that January 2009 start to the complete of what I call a spaghetti draft, which still had lots of holes in it and lots of insert brilliant scene here, brackets and so forth, but something that told me 
gave me a sense of what I had if I had something I could work with at that point. While I was writing this novel, I was very fortunate. There was a writer's office that had opened up in Santa Monica near where I live called the Writer's Junction. Now, sadly defunct, a, a casualty of Santa Monica rising rents. But it was a place where writers could come during the day, plug in and work. And even though there were more screenwriters than novelists, there were a number of novelists there. And there is something inspiring, energizing, being around other people who are writing. I would show up to work and after an hour or two on Facebook when everyone around me was writing busily, you know, shame propelled me to to get myself to work. But I found that going down, having a place to go to do this was helpful. I have a fairly set window where I think I do my best work, which is late morning around 11 o'clock until around 3 in the afternoon. I, I think most fiction writers, most writers can't go for long, sustained stretches. There are, can't do eight-hour days. By four hours, I'm kind of ready to take a nap. Uh, and that has typically been my best time. When I was younger, I, I would write, you know, one o'clock in the morning. But now, that is the window. And I would go there every day. I mean, I threw my laptop over my shoulder and walked down. And some days, the book cooperated, and I hit a roll. And some days, there was a lot of Facebook and email that got answered. But I find that the the regularity of effort is important. And it's when you work on a book day in and day out that the book really takes root in your brain. I, I, I know people who will sit down and every week and a half they'll write 15 pages in a burst. That works for them and everything, I suppose, everyone has their method. But I, I still generally feel that consistency of effort, even if you're writing a small number of pages often, you live in the world of the book. And what I found over those four years is I was really deeply intense in the world of this novel, even during times where I was distracted by, by my life. And that really helped finish those chapters, get to the end of that draft. But I tell my students all the time that the single best thing you can do before starting a revision is to take as much time away from your book as you can possibly manage. And they'll look at me and they'll say, you mean like two or three weeks, right? And I'll say, no, I mean two or three months. I mean, truly, the, just as you want the book to be in your head when you're writing it, you want it to leave your head before you sit down to read it and start to revise it. You want to come to it as fresh and as cleanly as possible. And it's artificial because it's your book, but you will forget things as you step aside over those months, that daily process of thinking about the book gets replaced by life, by other things, by, and then you can come and sit down and read this book, and it's a whole new experience. I waited nearly four months to read Memento Park, and as it happens, um, I ended up reading it in the lobby of a hotel in Jerusalem, where I had been invited to appear at the, uh, the Jerusalem Book Fair. And so I took the book with me. I wanted to read it in a setting that was wholly different than the setting in which I'd written it. And I sat on my hands as I advised my students, and I just read it through once, straight start to finish as quickly as I could. And as will happen, a number of big things leapt out at me. And incidentally, that spaghetti draft is not something I would ever show to anybody. Nobody saw that. I labored for four years, during which time really nobody saw what I was writing. My agent saw 20 early pages just so he could sign off on the voice and what he thought I was trying to do. And then that was it. I was I was in the caves by myself. So coming to it 
with this long break was essential. And so those big picture items became the work of my first revision, um, primarily taking the character of my narrator's fiance, who was horribly, if at, barely executed in the first draft, and really bringing her to life. She was the work of my second draft. It was devoted almost entirely to her. And at that point, I gave the book to two trusted readers, both novelists here in L.A., whose opinions I trust. And really all I asked them was, is this ready to show to my agent? And they both gave me wonderful, warm, and encouraging feedback and a lot of confidence. And so that version went off to my agent. He had some notes, as, as he tends to. They were not excessive. They were thoughtful. And I, I, I'm, I'm a list maker, and so I made a list of the notes from my agent. I also made a list of the notes from my two readers. And I went through another pair of drafts incorporating those notes. The final draft for me is always a language edit, a language draft. And this is a, a trick I teach my students that I, I firmly encourage every writer to do, which is the very final version of anything I do before I submit. I read it backwards. I start with the last sentence, and I read the last sentence. I check it for clarity, interesting language, active verbs, cliches. Is the sentence clear? I check off the sentence. And I do this out loud, by the way. Then I read the second to last sentence to myself, and I check it. So I'm removed from thinking about the sense of the narrative. I'm no longer trying to live in, oh, did I set this up? Or It's purely, is each sentence flowing? Is each sentence clean? Is each sentence sharp? What the reverse edit does is it allows you to concentrate simply on the sentence on its own terms. Are there active verbs? Is it original imagery? Am I employing cliches? Am I clear? Does the sentence flow? There are things that we think flow when we hear them in our head, then we take the time to read them out loud and we stumble and we realize, oh, we're not as brilliant as we thought we were. And all those sentences get fixed. The other virtue of going in reverse is you're no longer thinking about plot, story, continuity. You're really free to focus entirely on the sentence that it's that is in front of you. It gets your entire attention. And it's a little tedious time and it's time consuming it takes a long time but that's the version I turned into my agent who sold it in about three weeks and so I tell my students time and time again you cannot possibly take too much care with these things before you send them off into the world that was the last version which I did turned that into my agent and about three weeks later we had sold the novel so I'm really a big believer in taking that time and effort up front you cannot 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 do enough to get it just right before you send it out. I was very lucky with both of my novels. Both of them sold comparatively quickly. I have horror stories from my friends on how long these things can take. My first book sold in about two weeks and the second sold in about three. I stay pretty involved in the submission process. I will frequently chastise my writer friends who don't really have a window into what's going on with their book when it's on submission. I feel like the art part is complete this is now part of the business, and I want to be engaged in the business and make sure that you know, my agent is representing my interests. I want to know where it's being sent, to whom it has, specifically to whom at a given house it's been sent. I want to know when it gets passed on. I want to read the passes. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I'm a New Yorker, and I'm a grown-up, so you can, you can hit me with it. I, I, I want to know what's happening. And in the case of Memento Park, I had a dream publisher, which was Farrar Strauss. They had been my dream publisher for as long as I've been writing. And there was an editor at that house uh, who my agent and I felt would be a strong fit for the book. And so we sent it to her, and 
waited anxiously as, as, as she read it. In that time, we actually did get another offer on the book. So we, we had an offer in the pocket. And at that point, I sort of had that relief of thinking, well, okay, even if I don't get my dream, the book will be in the world. It, it's definitely, it validated my sense that this was a, a well-executed book and it would, would have its day. Unlike a lot of other publishing houses that sort of acquire by committee, for our Strauss, to a large extent, really, the editors have a lot of autonomy in terms of what they want to acquire. So we knew that the editor had read it and wanted it, and she had gone a step above to, to I believe, the president, and he was reading it, and I got an email to the effect that he's reading it and making promising noises, is what we heard. I still remember that one. And then he was on board, but they just wanted to clear the acquisition with the publisher, and the publisher was out of town. So I had to wait this endless weekend. It was the longest weekend of my life. My agent calls me on Monday morning, and the first thing out of his mouth, he says, so what you do all weekend? How are you feeling? You know, and he was just going to make me wait for it, make me squirm on the line a little bit, and then he gave me the news. And, of course, um, we, were, we were thrilled. And that began uh, a entirely new and long chapter in and of itself of working on the book with the editor and the publisher. So I worked with a marvelous, marvelous editor, uh, a woman named Eileen Smith. I had known her briefly when she had been an editor at Yale, and I had been very enthusiastic about one of her books that I'd helped champion on my blog. And so we were aware of each other. Eileen really responded to the book. And when we spoke on the phone, the editor, when an editor has acquired your book, there will always be sort of the congratulations call. And it was very funny. She told me on the call that she had somehow got it in her head that she wasn't going to get this book. And she was already reconciling herself to not having it. And I didn't want to tell her, you were a mortal lock from, from, from the outset. But she said she likes to acquire books where she feels she has something to offer. The books, they're, they're not perfect, and, and there's stuff to do. In the case of Memento Park, the biggest thing that Eileen brought, frankly, was getting my excessive self-indulgence under control. It is a voicey first-person novel in the style of John Banville, other writers like that who I admire. But there are many times where I was just clearly kind of in love with the sound of my own voice going on for sentence after sentence, and Eileen would unfailingly highlight a block of text, and the only thing she would write is necessary, question mark. And God damn it, every time she wrote necessary, I'd look at it and I'm, no, no, it's not necessary. And, and I would delete the offending passages. And so she really, really tightened the book. There, there are no new chapters. There were no dramatic changes. We added um, some information regarding the motives of one of the subplots. But really, all the work was language, tightening, tightening. I, I use the analogy when you, when you first um, assemble that IKEA bookcase and they tell you don't tighten everything until it's all in place. That's the version I gave her. And then the version she helped me finish was that version where we tightened and tightened and tightened everything. And it took about two years. There were two years of, of back and forth. In the end, I took 80% of her edits, which came to me via track changes and versions of the manuscript, as they were without question. I rejected 10% out of hand where I just thought, no, this is, this is not something I agree with. And she told me when we spoke on the phone, she said, look, this is your book. I will make suggestions, but at the end of the day, this book is yours. And then the remaining 10% were things where she'd had an idea, and I didn't necessarily like that specific idea, but it put me in the direction of a change that improved the book. It is, it's transformed in a way that 
I'm still, I don't fully understand because it is the same book that I sold her. And yet it is so orders better. It is orders better because of the work that she did. And then there were additional edits when the book went through the production pipeline. Uh, once you get into the production pipeline, you have a the copy editor gets involved. These people are remarkable. Their attention to continuity, pointing out things to me in the draft that I hadn't noticed, questions that I couldn't quite answer. It's a brilliant vetting process that, again, improved the book. When you take a long time writing a novel, as I have with Memento Park, you're not the same writer at the end of the process that you were at the beginning. And so what happens is each time you sit down and you read it, you see something more. You see something new. The last two passes that I did with my with my editors, and those are versions that came after the galley. So there's a version that goes out for publicity, and then there are two additional passes since then of me just continuing to cut and cut and cut. Sometimes a word here, a clause here, I realize that sort of is my editor's enduring gift to me that she is so alerted me to any kind of excess. And it's still a, it, as I say, it's a very voicey book. It's not, it, it isn't Hemingway. You're not going to read it and find this stripped down thing. It, 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 I, I hope that there's a richness and a fullness and, and a lyricism in the voice, but much as is needed and no more. As I said in my acknowledgments to my editor, she improved not just this book, but all the books that will follow. Once the production work is complete, or even before it's complete, um, the writer is introduced to the publicity staff, um, hardworking, bright-eyed, enthusiastic, wonderful people who, you know, pick up your book, tuck it under your arm, and try to run it, you know, to the end zone. And you begin to have a series of conversations with publicists. Uh, one conversation you may have will focus on all the tastemakers, potential tastemakers that you might possibly know who can help your book. You're given a questionnaire, an author questionnaire from publicity. And the purpose of that questionnaire is for them to extract information on anybody who can help the life of this book. Uh, as it happens, I had a reasonably successful blog for a number of years back when blogs were a thing in, in Web 1.0. So I do know a lot of people, and there remains a, a certain amount of curiosity about what I'm working on because of that blog and the long gap between my first book and the second book. So we would fill out the questionnaire. We talked about... Uh, places where appearances might be worth doing. We, be, we began the planning of a, of a book tour. Uh, modest, it's not a big na international thing, but I'll be going to a number of cities on the West Coast and, and to New York. Another part of the publicity track is that writers get to write a whole bunch of free stuff, which writers just love doing. We get this uh, list of venues that would like to have essays from us, and obviously the, the essays help the venue, if they're good and people come to read them, they also help you because you get to get your name out there and mention that your book is imminent. I have a, a list of a dozen of these essay topics and that is exists and is growing, and at some point I'll actually have to sit down and begin writing them. I'm also a book reviewer, and it's nice uh, if I can review books around the time that my book is coming out because I'm actually doing something I love, uh, thinking critically about novels and um, being put out in front of the, the public eye. I'll have a book review that I've written in the New York Times book review here in the next probably month or so. I've been very, 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 very fortunate with blurbs. Asking for blurbs is one of the most odious things that a writer can possibly do. It's agonizing. It's embarrassing. You, you, you're, you're down on your knees saying, please take pity on me. Help me out. 
it's a big ask to have somebody sit down and read an entire novel and you're asking other novelists who are writing their own novels and reading many other things and many of them are teaching and they're busy, busy people. So I have sort of perfected the the craft of the the humble ask, which truly gives the widest possible latitude for people to say no. Uh, so far in all my life of blurbing, only one person ever said no, and I, I won't say who he was on this podcast, but it was a he. Um, for this book, I approached uh, some people who I know. You know, one of the one of the things, one of the dirty secrets about the world of blurbs is when you pick up a book in the store and you read blurbs. These are these writers are friends of the author. They almost always come from the people you know. I had this vision. Well, I'll be going to FSG, and they have this bench, this deep bench of some of the greatest writers of the age, and. I still had to come up with my, my own blurbs. There was not a lot of help gotten there. Um, but I'm friends with some wonderful, talented people and people who I've gotten to know over the years, whether through my blog or as a reviewer. Um, my very close friend, Marissa Silver, gave me my first and in some ways my most treasured blurb because it, it's from somebody who was involved from the book early on. She was one of my two early readers. Um I was very fortunate to get a blurb from Minjin Lee, uh, another friend who we had our first novels out at the same time about 10 years ago, and her second novel was a National Book Award finalist um, last year, Pachinko, a wonderful, wonderful book. And we did an event together for that in at Vroman's in Pasadena, and she was very kind to give me a blurb. I got a blurb from Joseph O'Neill, uh, the author of one of my favorite books of the last... Di- decade plus now, 2008, the novel Netherland, was a really um, ground-changing book for me, and I got to know him through some interviews, and we became friendly, and he was beyond gracious, giving me the blurb. And then, of course, um, Salman Rushdie, which is the one that everybody's eyes sort of pop open when they see that. Um, And that's one that was my sort of shoot-the-moon request. He knew me slightly over the years, through my uh, through my blog, we had met a handful of times. He's a very very nice man. We are Facebook friends. I sent him a somewhat grovelly, abject message through Facebook, um, giving him every possible out, and he was very kind. And he said, "Send the book." You know, he asked to see it, as as all blurbers do. Nobody just says, "Sure, I'll give you a blurb." Generally, they want to see the book, um, and I sent it to him afraid to hope that it would actually come through so it was a great thrill when he provided such a a, a warm um, and enthusiastic blurb for the novel here's an excerpt from the opening of Memento Park my name, the name I use is Matt Santos, the name I was born with is Matthias Santos the name I might well have been born with is Matyash Santos I'm none of these people and I'm all of them I was born the year America elected president a B-movie actor who promised them a shining city on the hill, born to a refugee fleeing an old country in ruins who believed in such visions. I'm an actor, and although you probably don't know my name, chances are you would recognize my face. My IMDb listing is littered with roles like second engineer and reporter number three, and though the work might seem trivial to you, I've established a reputation among people who fill these thousands of roles as a reliable, drama-free journeyman who can be counted upon to arrive on time, find a reasonably original way to deliver my lines, though not so original that I risk eclipsing the star, 
and to behave with moderation at the craft services table and with the female production assistants. When the part calls for a brainy expositor with just a dash of edge, I have been on the casting director's short lists for several years. I've been in a dozen films you are sure to know, have stood in the glow of the women whose exploits you follow in gossip magazines, careful never to get in their sightlines, have donned costumes from three of the last four centuries and one yet to come, and even enjoyed a brief moment of attention for playing a character with a proper name on a television series that was a low-rated critical darling for the only season of its existence. I've dabbled in Shakespeare, Beckett, all the stations of the cross you visit to assert your thespian bona fides, but in truth, I'm not much of an actor, and never have been. What I have is the convincing appearance of a certain ragged intelligence. Whether I actually possess it or not, I look the part. Dark-eyed intensity, slight of stature, but firm in the conviction of my wits, the man who gets the last word in the heated argument about which deadly tunnel the hero must crawl through or what the nuclear terrorist's next move is likely to be. That intensity has kept me working for more than a decade. It's an absurd way for an adult to make a living, and I'm often embarrassed by it, my embarrassment compounded by the fact that my name never quite comes to the lips of those who squint and cock their heads my way with that look of almost recognition. I remember watching my first televised role, a one-line walk-on in a popular New York police drama, with my parents in our Queen's living room. My assignment was to let the star know that his next interview had arrived. My character was required to stick his head around a corner and say, We've got Hughes in interview three. The star looked my way with appropriate gravity, contemplating the difficult exchange awaiting him, and murmured, Thanks, with an intensity that validated his weekly millions. He rose to face poor bereft Hughes and faded to a commercial. I turned to my parents expectantly. My mother was effusive, hugged me proudly, but my father cleared his throat, unsure what to say. Verva's the rest of you. It was the best he could manage. I stared at him, deflated. Your face, they only showed us your face. Verva's the rest of you. Despite 40 years in America, his W's and V's remained stubbornly interchangeable. I tried to explain the mechanics of the shot, the director's intention, which had less to do with art and more with wanting to shoot as few setups as possible, but finally gave up. It's a line, I said, my first speaking part on network TV. How much did they pay you? His favorite question, I would hear it often. I cited a figure that was more than he made in a week. My mother gasped. I was 19, and by the end of that year, I would be living on my own in Los Angeles. The Right Process is produced by me, Charlie Jensen, at the UCLA Extension Studio. Audio support and editing were provided by Jamie Moss, Eileen Keegan, and Hannah Sutherland. For more information on the Writers Program, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.